Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital or you are looking to get your company acquired or just need some sound financial planning and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at PantheraAdvisors.com or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a really exciting guest that has been all over the world building and scaling companies. So I think that we're going to be learning quite a bit. I mean, I, I even lose track with how many companies he's done. I mean, it's really remarkable. But without further ado, let's welcome our guest today. I think that you're really going to enjoy this one. So Alexei Dubov, welcome to the show. Hi. Hi. Great to be here. So originally Alexei born in Moscow, Russia. So how was life growing up in, in Moscow? Well, I mean... Uh... Have you ever been in Moscow, Russia, or in Russia in general? I have not, but that's on my on my on my bucket <laughs> list. Yeah, I mean, in general, Moscow is beautiful. Uh, like growing there is uh, something like you know very different compared to you know in terms of education system and what is kind of like you know provided to you compared to let's say U.S. or Europe. Um, also, spent time in Germany. Uh, but in general, I mean, education system is very good. Uh, and the, I, I remember, like I told to some people, whenever you work hard, you actually can get like very high, very good education for free. But uh, it's also really, it's required to you to work very hard. And, and, and in your case, obviously, you work very hard and you studied very hard. And, and I guess, you know, in terms of studying, you studied engineering. Uh, but why engineer? I mean, what got you into into the idea of solving problems? I don't know. Maybe by like when I was in school, basically I was very good with physics and math. Uh, so that's how it started. Typically, I was like, you know, sort of like two years ahead of the program. And for me, it was very boring. My school was basically connected to one of the top 10 universities and the institutes in, in, in Moscow. Uh, but I was shooting for a higher bar. So whenever like all my, you know, schoolmates were kind of like, yeah, we know we're going to go to this institute. I was saying like, I was shooting for like higher bar. So in the last two years of school, I was actually preparing very hard for uh, participating in, in a, accepting like to the exams to go to this university, which I succeeded basically. I don't know. So engineer, there was no question to go like, you know, other disciplines. Uh, basically, it was all, always about like, okay, which type of engineering? So I decided to do Robotics and complex automation because I, I in school I you know liked software engineering also I like physics and uh, but you know you typically choose in two directions right robotics is kind of like combining both of them 
So that's what uh, was very interesting for me. And uh, that's why I decided to do robotics and complex information. And did you have anyone in your family? Because uh, obviously right away, even in university, you were already launching your own startup. So did you have anyone in your family that was an entrepreneur or into business? Or how did you develop that love for creating and building stuff? And, you know, business, business. Well, I don't know. Honestly, in my family, no one is an entrepreneur or like on the company, something like that. Uh, so I'm the, I'm the first one. Honestly speaking, it started somewhat like organically. In, in a second year university, uh, me just uh, I met a guy who um, you know was uh, kind of like willing to invest in some of the ideas that I was like digitizing, uh, basically. And uh, me being in a top university. Actually, I think about the entrepreneurs from a different perspective from second year university because I, I saw the opportunity and I actually had an access to top talents who were my like university you know, classmates. And basically, I was like, you know, pulling them into becoming part of my team. So I built my, my first team with, uh, you know, with my folks from university uh, where we already have the trust. We have the same schedule. Right. So we were able to tighten it like, OK, we need to uh, kind of like starting in the morning, then go for, you know, like do software or hardware engineering uh, and then like, you know, do like with customers and et cetera. Yeah. So it was uh, excited. So obviously that that first company was in university. So uh, you, you actually were quite successful. I mean, for being the first one because you build it and then you sold that one. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it wasn't part of the university. I mean, I was in university with my, uh, you know, yeah. basically whoever I hired, who the guys I hired. But uh, in general, I was telling them it's an opportunity to grow, to get in the first experience of like, you know, working and uh, delivering the first things. And uh, yeah. I think one of the one of the actually critical uh, skills for any entrepreneur is uh, to be able to build a team. That's number one. It's uh, beside like all the skill set that uh, people might have. This is like the most, uh, you know, kind of like most needed one and required one to be successful. Yeah, no, 100 percent. I'm right there with you. Uh, and we're going to be talking about that because I'd like to get your thoughts on on team building, you know, especially when we talk about, you know, your your latest baby. But, you know, before we get to that one, you know, I want to I want to understand what happened then after, you know, you graduated from university, because at this point is where your incredible uh, shift, you know, and, and moving from one location to another, you know, to from Russia to uh, Singapore, from Singapore back to Russia. I mean, incredible. And also even Germany. So, so tell us about, you know, like what happened after graduating from university. So honestly, like moving to Germany, I also saw, like happened more or less uh, spontaneous because uh, we built this uh, retail solution for to distribute digital content be before uh, you know this content on demand on a streaming service in like two it was uh, like 2007 2009 when we were developing this technology uh, the big question was about like right uh, management uh, basically protection of the copyrights and the digital copyrights because this space was not developed at all and uh, for most use cases people were using you know optical disc and uh, like CDs and DVDs. So we developed a solution that allowed to kind of like uh, pre-record this content on demand. Basically, you go into this retail store saying like, I don't know, I want this movie, I want this uh, music. And so it's getting, it, it was like prepared for you with a digital print with everything like within three, five minutes. 
Um, so that's a solution which apparently was not very popular in Russia, in Moscow, due to, you know, torrents and availability of content through kind of like illegal, uh, not like very legal sources. Uh, and uh, that was uh, like we by that time, we were mostly focused on gaming because gaming industry was just, you know, booming with electronic arts. Uh, we have a very good partnership with electronic arts in Russia. For example. And they suggested to try this, what we were building outside of Russia, basically go to Germany, for instance. That's how we end up presenting our solution on Gamescom, the first Gamescom uh, in Kern in 2009. And the thing is that, like, when we show this uh, machine to uh, retailers, uh, I remember, like, one guy from Czech Republic, he has actually was back to our booth on the second day and saying, like, hey, I can just go to a bank and get, like, 20,000 euro to you right now if you can book one of this machine for our location. So it's kind of like, you know, when, where you see market is pulling your product to, to, uh, to basically monetize and build. So, to, so it's needed on the market. So... That's what, uh, when we decided like, okay, so what we need to do now, we need to open in like an entity in Germany and start production and uh, building these units for uh, for basic European market. So that's how we started in 2009. We started Trinity, um, Trinity Innovation and Marketing GmbH. It was kind of like extension of our company from Russia, which was called Trade, Trademartic, uh, which is kind of like R&D because R&D and, uh, you know, access to talent is very way more affordable compared to Europe and in the US. Uh, yeah. And um, that's how this kind of like, you know, transition happened. And may honestly speaking, like for the first, you know, half a year or a year, I was still like traveling a lot uh, between Berlin. Like my favorite flight was like uh, 1 a.m. in the morning from Berlin to Moscow. Uh, and in, like early, early, basically for the week, for like three weeks, for a month, depending like on the scope and et cetera. So, we built this uh, network in Germany, basically, uh, um, honestly speaking, it took longer, uh, as usual, you know, whenever you go into the market, you have very aggressive plans, but then the reality, the certification, the regulatory, and all this, uh, you know, European uh, market and Germany specifically, they claim, like, you know, there is a good wording for, uh, as I remember the translation to this, I don't remember how to pronounce it in Germany, but they say, good things require time. That's the main. Yeah. So in Germany, they, they prefer to basically, you know, put more time into good things, basically to process it, to think about it. Uh, and um, our aggressive plan was to roll out everything within like a year and a half, which ended up rolling out only basically in the beginning of 2011, where we start getting some, you know, money from, from this um, network of uh, kind of chain of the machines that we distributed. And again, 2012, we just saw, I actually went to one of the most popular, um, you know, media exhibition in Amsterdam. Um, and uh, I just realized that the section dedicated for innovation was fully about digital, you know, content and uh, copyrights, DRM systems, so digital right management. And I just realized that basically they all heading towards, you know, providing access for digital content on demand, streaming it, right? So in um, about like two months, we decided to roll the, you know, our chain, like of the, of the equipment back uh, with all these retailers. Uh, we were able to kind of, you know, in some cases, you just need to see the trend and make this, I mean, you were pushing, like we were pushing a lot for this solution to become the like real, right? But whenever you see the, trend is going like 
you know, against your business model. And, and we would just realized, okay, even like providing uh, streaming in these locations, it might work, for instance, in airport or um, urban station. It's similar to train stations uh, in yeah. Germany. So that might work. But again, there's going to be temporary solution until the network, right? Like 5G right now, like 4G previously. Uh, we'll be able to provide the same services. So we just decided, okay, let's just, you know, fix like what we're getting right now, reach out to all our uh, basically partners, retail partners, if they have, they're on the same page. And uh, we just realized, yeah, I mean, they, they were also like very saying like, yeah, we see the trend, so it's understandable. Let's just do it. So we kind of like pull the trigger, uh, close this, um, like we put back all this equipment back to manufacturers. Like it was, again, kind of like, very good return of investment because they could, some of the part of the kit even like were more expensive to sell <laughs> later uh, than right. purchase initially. Um, and basically, somewhat like by that time, I also uh, kind of like get curious about how light influences our health. Uh, and it's connected to this aha moment was basically when I was, you know, working like long hours. And in Germany, like in December, for instance, there was a period where there is almost no sun. Uh, and I was just curious, like, okay, reading about the light. And uh, I realized basically that um, there is a lot of, you know, research and results done in terms of like how light actually influences our health. Uh, and But no one was able to kind of like digitalize it and combine together in something that is consumable by, uh, can be consumed by, you know, customer. Uh, but in the residential lighting. Um, so that that's what we started with uh, Fraunhofer Institute in Germany. Basically, uh, I reached out to them and uh, I met with a couple of folks there who were very interested in in kind of like doing like this uh, desk research and start other like research activities related to the topic. And that's where how we came up with, um, you know, this Svet, uh, uh, the first health-friendly lighting light bulb. Yeah, and we were mostly focused on you know replicating the natural light, extending this uh, kind of like you know the, the palette of the light that can be reproduced. The, the one thing is very important is actually how you dim the light, uh, because with LED there is a uh, complexity. The lower you go, the flickering will happen, which is very bad for our um, like eyes, and uh, it creates fatigue. So we will focus on these measures. Uh, metrics and uh, we were able to achieve like quite uh, you know remarkable results and created IP. Uh, we still I still hold this IP with one of the organizations and uh, some of the IP being you know licensed uh, to other organizations. And this was actually the um, the segue no for you to get into mighty buildings, right? I mean it was obviously you know going from one company to another until finally you were able to land on your current baby. So. Tell us about Mighty Buildings uh, and what was that process of incubating the idea and, and bringing Mighty Buildings to life? The credits for the initial ideas actually belongs to my uh, co-founder, Dmitry uh, and uh, Slava. Uh, so I actually met them in Singapore back in 2015, I remember, like some, something like that. So, and uh, I, I was, back then, Slava was running uh, his hardware uh, you know, early stage fund to support like early stage startups, specifically in hardware, uh, kind of like bridging the ideas from Europe from all around the world and connecting them with, uh, you know, PCs in, in Singapore or in Hong Kong and allowing them to uh, kind of like see what is actually the production uh, in, in China. 
so that's um, you know I we actually made like a good connection there. Uh, even like when Slav was at the fund, he actually supported one of my startup with Svet. He actually supported Svet. Uh, and another startup that we started about that time with Anton is uh, this glance glance clock. It's more like a smart wall clock. The idea was. Uh, that whenever you go to any room and you know that there is a clock, you will glance at it, right, to read information instantly. So the idea was to add additional information on this clock with a display, but not changing right. the glance, uh, you know, the uh, clock face in terms of like with hands, which we like designed to read very fast. Um, so with this, I mean, in 2017, actually, Dmitry, his previous startup was about 3D printing. Uh, and he transferred like a lot of knowledge from his previous uh, startup. And uh, I remember it was June 2017 and, uh, you know, all great ideas starting in, uh, you know, in a bar, uh, drinking some cocktail or like a beer. And I, that was a case. I mean, that honestly, it wasn't like the the stage of creating the idea, but Dmitry was kind of like telling the story of like printing something big. It wasn't like, it wasn't mighty building was it about buildings it was just an idea so what we can print where we can validate this and i wasn't uh, he actually introduced it to me uh i was busy fundraising for actually glance lock and we were shipping our first batch of like uh 3000 units uh back then so we were pretty busy uh but later on so when slava actually joined forces with Dmitry, and uh, they were uh, basically about to go to YC, that's the moment when I joined. Because by that time, we realized that for to go from for Glance Clock to actually fundraise, uh, like additional round was kind of like a complex thing. Result. And by that time, there was a lot of, you know, speculation in terms of uh, hardware startups in general. There were like failure for Juicero and other stuff, uh, if you remember them. Yeah. Uh, and uh, that's kind of like impacted in general how VCs were, you know, perceiving any hardware, pure hardware startups without like, you know, kind of like digging deeper into the platform vision. And platform vision wasn't there. I mean, we were creating it. But we also built like a good relationship with uh, Next Time in Netherlands, who is uh, like one of the world leading uh, kind of like clock manufacturer in the world. And then right now they, you know, took over the uh, glance clock and you still, as a product, you can purchase it. So in uh, in December 2017, I joined forces actually with Slav and Dmitry. So we went to IC, uh, and uh, that's the moment basically where uh, initial idea was to validate the market with accessory dwelling units. And back in 2017, 18, it was very early. I mean, right now everyone knows like okay, accessory dwelling units in California like top market, uh, but back then it was only like hundreds of permits. Um, but we saw this, uh, you know, initiative. So we started validating uh, the customers visiting backyards, you know, uh, building kind of like a process of how we qualify them, how we do zoning check, how we collect the deposits, like what uh, uh, what we can do uh, from also regulatory standpoint. All that was done actually while Mighty Buildings was in stealth mode. And that was very important because we saw like multiple instances where people were trying to do something with 3D printing and construction. But it, there was no, you know, actual results, like no buildings, no like communities built with 3D printing. And uh, when we thought about the reasons, we understood that basically the regulatory, I mean, technologically, you can print like the structure. But on a regulatory standpoint, no one willing to kind of like 
you know, sign off on this and saying like, we can accept the risk and liability. So that's where we decided to basically engage a regulatory organization very early. Like we start working with the underwriters laboratory, UL. UL is one of the world leading, uh, you know, certification uh, authorities in the world. Um, and that's how we dis- so based on our work, uh, we created new standard, which is UL 3401, uh, introducing additive manufacturing for construction. And so far, I mean, Mighty Banks, what we did in Stealth Mode, we actually opened a new category for the industry. We are right now the only one and uh, the first one and still the only one who is, uh, you know, certified under, under this category. And on top of that, actually, what UL did, they also added a adoptable appendix to international residential code. So basically, Mighty Building changed the industry, even being in stealth mode, while delivering, you know, products to customers, which the first delivery happened actually um, early last year. Uh, in in, in, a, in February, early February, we delivered the first unit to, to the customer. And we were delivering units like even in the pandemic because we considered essential business. So the next unit, yes, we, we saw we see delays right now due to pandemic with some permitting and entitlements, but well, I guess every everyone is seeing those. But I guess yeah. just so that the people that uh, that are listening get it, what ended up being the business model of Mighty Buildings? How do you guys make money? So right now we actually make money from the unit that we produce. We kind of like act as a one, you know, as a sort of like we serve the customers. Uh, on the other hand. Uh, our scalability factor, the business model, is to provide developers with a solution that can be easily, uh, you know, kind of like, for my manufacturing here in Auckland is actually product agnostic. So meaning that if you think about 3D printing, you don't need to change the process if you go from one design to another design. And this is very, very kind of like expensive thing like whenever you do it on site or you do it let's say with a traditional prefab uh, because you need to change the whole process the whole assembly process we don't need to do this another thing is uh, that uh, our material that we developed in technology is superior to traditional materials so basically we built with a you know synthetic stone where compared to wood to steel uh, we have a better, you know, thermal efficiency. Uh, our material act as a water and air barrier, so we kind of like eliminated all these, you know, subsystem that typically apply to a traditional construction site, and we simplify the process of the assembly because we can print a really complex geometry, integrated geometry, let's say interior, exterior, and it's all connected with, uh, you know, traditional like 3D printed patterns, just to hold them together, and. Um, it's a, it's a it's a way different efficient process. So so comparing, for instance, to uh, automotive and aerospace industries, right? Decades ago, those industries were kind of like changed by composite materials. So the car you're driving most likely is uh, I don't know ninety percent something uh, built with composites, uh, because they're more efficient, they're more sustainable, uh, they're lighter, and they're uh, stronger. So we do we do we do the same with construction. And our business model right now is uh, we actually, I divide them into, you know, B2C revenue stream, B2B revenue stream. The overall goal is to introduce the efficient process of uh, home building uh, to actually to customers, be it like, you know, commercial builder, be it, uh, you know, multifamily residential builder. So then, so then how much capital have you guys raised to date for the company? Uh, 70 million. 70 million. And the... I mean, obviously here, you know, like you probably learn 
the difference between pitching an investor in Russia, pitching an investor in the U.S. and Singapore and other areas of the world. So how, how have you find the investor mindset and perhaps the concerns that they have uh, different from one region to another as you're you know, pitching different, different investors? Well, in general, you know, framework is more or less the same. It's, uh, I think about it as, um, you know, kind of like maturity of the investor. Let's say me pitching and seeing investors in like 2008, 2009 is very different from what investors are asking, like or value in like right now. Again, it's kind of like tied to uh, a little bit, uh, you know, success stories uh, that happening right now in the market. Another one, it's uh, tied to kind of like trends. Um, that are popular in the market, right? So you you see you look in the segment and see like okay, what is the A player right now over there? Like what why are you better? Like what you changing? Are you targeting to disrupt this industry for like one one percent, ten percent? How feasible is your approach, right? And in in most cases, like what I can say that doesn't matter where and how you're pitching, it basically always about the founding team, uh, at least on the early stages, right? So before you go to kind of like uh, the stage where you need to scale and grow, it's all, it's all always going to be about founding team, ability to uh, execute, ability to, uh, you know, communicate and uh, communicate the, your successes and also like asking for, you know, support and help. That's very important for uh, all the investors. They actually need to see you as a business unit, how you're being successful in terms of like executing your plan of your commitments and uh, how you're able to adapt and adjust to for the sake of like success of the company. And in this case, in terms of like you were talking about team, for example, how, how many people do you guys have right now in my building? Uh, about one, 125. Got it. And what have you learned about team building? What is the biggest lesson that you've learned so far? Maybe something around culture or something around people that, that you got it, that it was like, wow, you know, and, and, that clicked and it's something that you are implementing, you know, from now moving forward as you're thinking about the culture, as you're thinking about team building or building, you know, like that senior leadership team. Well, I would say, I would say that, uh, you know, creating a definition of your cultural values in certain sort of like readable form is very important and uh, be consistent in terms of like how you communicate this to other people. Uh, so for instance, um, like early on, we decided then that this was my initiative to, uh, kind of like utilize agile methods of the development. And that helped us a lot because it's also triggers kind of like, okay, uh, we need to focus on, you know, collaboration, support, transparency, make sure that every, like the work is visible. This is like very important thing because a lot of miscommunication happening, like, oh, I was not able, like aware that he was doing this too. Like, okay, like why? Don't know where to find this job, like like to find what he's uh, working on. Like, how often do you synchronize? What what do you do on these calls, and etc. So, and uh, being able to translate it in a readable form is very important, and also like constantly communicating. Another part of it is um, I wouldn't say that this is a moment. It's small, less uh, kind of like you know obvious, but uh, uh, some people just don't invest a lot of time into this. They just do mentor people, right? So. Uh, whoever is willing to kind of learn, you just dedicate, you know, one-on-one and basically, I don't, like, whenever you, as a, like, as a founder on an entrepreneur, you need, in this case, be on the side of this person, like, whoever you're mentoring. So, because you can't, you share the common goals, like, your successes, basically, his successes and his failures are your successes and failures, too. So, it's more about learning and being open uh, to communicate, which is very important. 
So this that's how you kind of like translate this culture over um, the organization. Of course, it's hard to whenever you're going through you know rapid growth like hiring thirty people. Uh, it just takes time, and again, like yeah, in some cases there is you know, you know cultural misfit that happens uh, unfortunately. Uh, and uh, but that's fine. I mean, you need to move on, right? Uh, basically, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. So I guess. One of the questions that I typically ask the guests that, that come on the show is, if I was able to put you into a time machine and I'm able to bring you back in time and I'm able to, you know, give you the opportunity of you being able to have a chat with your younger self, with that younger Alexei, maybe, you know, the younger Alexei that was thinking about launching a business back in school. No? And you are able to give yourself one piece of business advice before launching a company. What would that be and why based on what you know now? Good question. Basically, I, I think that for me, 21-year-old, I would say, uh, I mean, I learned it like pretty early compared to other people. I, I think that in 20, 20, back in 20, when I was 21, it still was very valuable to understand that, you know, coach, not judge kind of thing. And also, okay. like, make sure that whenever you design an organization, design it for, like, you know, two steps in a, in a, in a hat, right? So, because in some cases, building organization is not going to, um, it's kind of like tied together with uh, coach don't judge because uh, if you kind of like do in retrospect, you'll understand, okay, this is actually my decision that caused these problems and I was not that wise, like not experienced. Uh, and, uh, you know, in some cases, engaging people who are more experienced and, uh, you know, also looking for mentors is very important. Design the organization in a way that's going to be for two stages ahead, sort of, right? Maybe by the design, right? Not like, you know, hiring people in advance or something like that. I'm not saying like adopting the process and uh, kind of like just organization operational model to the way that will allow you to scale organically rather than, you know, changing the team and position structure as you go. Got it. And what is a book that you wish you would have read earlier? I would say book uh, two books actually. Um, I think Radical Candor is one of them. Uh, another one is Traction. Uh, very good books. Yeah. Good stuff. So, Alexei, for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? LinkedIn. <laughs> Amazing. That, that's very easy. So, Alexei, thank you so much for being on the Deal Maker Show today. Yeah. Thank you for having me. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.